take your Bibles and turn to Mark. As you're doing there, uh, I think you can do two things at once. Um, uh, we had a leadership retreat this past weekend, and uh, many of you were praying. We did mention that, and thank you for doing that. We were away uh, Friday uh, dinner time and came back after dinner on Saturday or just before dinner on Saturday. And it was a good time together, uh, busy time, full time. One of the things that we had as a goal was to uh, consider what unites us as a leadership, uh, what unites us as a church. And uh, there are a lot of things that uh, we can easily get sidetracked on. And so it was just kind of a pulling us together again, our hearts and our minds. And I thank the Lord for that time and for you who prayed um, for us while we were away. One last thing, uh, in the seats in front of you, uh, there are things, they're not just coloring paper, um, although there is coloring paper there, but uh, there's cards in there that uh, give information about a couple of things. One of them is this one that says, God is real, that changes everything. On the back, it talks about the various ways that you can find out what's going on in, uh, in our family. And so I'd encourage you, take that home, um, check out some of the things that are there and get connected with us uh, electronically. Uh, there's also a connect card that we have in there. This is just looking for information. Um, we don't sell it. Well, I might on the side. That's how I make a bit of money on the side. Uh, we don't sell your information. It just helps us uh, to um, have up-to-date information. And so uh, if you've been coming for a while and you're thinking that this might be a place you land, just fill out one of those connect cards. And then there's finally uh, a card in there that talks about how you can prepare for worship on the Lord's Day. Very helpful um, information. So take those cards home if you want, and we do fill those up um, uh, fairly regularly. Uh, Mark, chapter 1, verses 1 to 8 this morning. In the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, and Make straight his paths. John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. And he preached, saying, After me comes one who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Father, for your word we are so grateful for. For it tells us about you. It tells us about your plans for this world. It tells us about ourselves. And may you speak to us through it this morning, I pray. Father, may what... We know not, will you teach us? And what we have not, would you give us? And what we are not, would you make us? In Christ's name we pray, amen. Uh, we're just starting our look in the book of John, and uh, it's, uh, I hope, going to be a fascinating journey. Uh, there's three directions that I want us to think about this morning a little bit from this particular text. Uh, and one of it is just a reminder of John's understanding of Scripture and John's understanding of uh, John the Baptist. And uh, the first point is simply something hidden is about to be revealed. If you remember last week, I mentioned to you that uh, the Bible is a, a unity. We take it together. 
And we use that phrase, something along the lines of the New Testament is contained in the Old, and the Old Testament is explained in the New. And the two go very much together. And so John begins right away by quoting a word from the prophet Isaiah, which was written 700 years previous to the arrival of John the Baptist. And Mark says, John is the fulfillment of that scripture. That's an incredible thing to wrap your head around. Uh, as it is written in the Isaiah, the prophet, look, I am sending my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way, a voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord and make his path straight. Isaiah wrote that not knowing who that would be. Isaiah wrote that under the guidance of the Spirit of God. Isaiah wrote that um, uh, as God had impressed this upon him, saying that the plan of redemption is going to be worked out. God is going to send uh, the Messiah. Uh, I just don't know what that's going to look like. I don't know when that's going to happen. But there will be a voice of one crying out in the wilderness, saying, prepare yourselves for the coming of the Lord. And John appears, and the connection is made. John is the fulfillment of that particular prophecy. And this is one of the ways in which we know Scripture to be true. Sometimes you might wrestle in your, in, in your head, and you might say, well, who knows that the Bible is true? It just might be a bunch of good words. Uh, it, it just might be a, a book of stuff that uh, you can take or leave, and, uh, um, but I don't know if it's true. Well, this is one of the ways in which you and I can be assured that Scripture is the very Word of God. Because in Scripture, God writes things and has His prophets write things that happened or that, that predicted things that would happen hundreds of years and sometimes thousands of years later. And who can do that? But the one who knows the end from the beginning. And this is God's Word. He knows this world that He has made. He knows all that is going to happen in this world. And he tells us ahead of time in his word what is going to happen. And so it's a wonderful reality that we have such a word that is confirmed to us as true because of its fulfillment years down the road. As I say, Isaiah wrote sometime in seven, between 739 and 681 BC. How would he have ever known who John the Baptist was? How would he have ever known that there would be one whose voice would be crying out in the wilderness, bringing us good news about Jesus Christ? And so Mark tells us that John is that voice, the fulfillment of Old Testament Scripture in the person of John the Baptist. So Scripture is trustworthy. The second thing that I just want to jog your attention to or, or, or put in your head to think about is God has a plan we look at the world in which we live sometimes and we, it, it seems chaotic. It, it seems like it's spinning out of control. It can appear that, that there's nobody who is at the reins or at the helm of the world guiding it and directing it to a, 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 an end that makes any sense at all. Well, this is a reminder here that God has a plan and he's working it out. Jesus' is coming to this world is not an accident. It's not like, oops, God says in his head, like, oh, man, stuff is out of control. We better send Jesus into the world. Jesus' coming to this world is not an afterthought. 
It is part of the eternal plan of God, who even when he created the world, he created a theater of redemption. He created this massive stage in which he would work out salvation for men and women, and that that salvation would culminate in the coming of Jesus Christ, and that Jesus Christ would appear in the last days, and he would bring about the conclusion to God's work of salvation on this planet. And so this is something for us to keep in mind. You, you can go to Revelation, I think it's chapter 5, where there's a scroll and there's writing on the front and on the back of the scroll. And there's sort of mourning in heaven, like who can open the scroll? And why is that important? Because the scroll reveals the plan of God for this world in the last days. And we know that Jesus Christ was able to come and open the scroll. And so we're reminded here as we think about the fulfillment of Scripture in John the Baptist being the voice that Isaiah prophesied would come, we're reminded that God is working out his plan. Don't fret, loved ones. Don't be in turmoil as you see the chaos in the world that is around us. Know that God is on the throne and that God is directing the events of heaven and on earth. So something hidden was about to be revealed, and that revelation is John the Baptist, who comes in fulfillment of Isaiah's word that a voice would come crying in the wilderness, make straight the path for the Lord. The second thing that uh, is, uh, stands out to me was that something big is happening in the desert. Something big is happening in the desert. And, and we might say, well, why the desert? Well, the desert was, was often the place where the people of God went to meet God. When the people of God uh, were called out of Egypt, they went through the Red Sea and they came into the desert and there God spoke to them and there their hearts were turned towards God. It was there that they returned to God, at least for a period of time. And so what happens here is, is like this, it's, it's, it's a tectonic shift. It's, it's like, the world was shaken amongst the, uh, the, the, the people of Judah and Israel. The whole religious system was turned on its head. John tells us that a man appeared. John appeared. It's not like he appeared out of nowhere, but it's like he wasn't there one day, and the next day he was there. And he had a, a considerable impact on the whole Judean countryside. And he doesn't come with sort of this soft, gentle uh, voice. He comes proclaiming or preaching uh, a voice crying out in the wilderness. There was this message that had to be heard. There was this proclamation that had to be made. And it was a very concise one. It was a very particular one that people would repent for the forgiveness of their sins. That they would repent in preparation for the coming of a king. And the, the words were also harsh words for when the Pharisees and the scribes came out um, to hear John and to see John. He looks at them and he says, you brood of vipers. That's a very, very strong way of saying, you guys are a bunch of deceivers. You're dangerous people. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? And so John is this one who appears on the scene seemingly out of nowhere he comes with a, uh, with a cry and a proclamation. 
He doesn't show up in the temple or in the synagogue where the religious leaders would maybe have expected him to be. He's not wearing the normal garb of of religious leaders. It says he's dressed in a garment of camel hair. He certainly doesn't have the normal diet of most people as he lives in the wilderness and he eats locusts and honey. And likely he had hair, there it goes again, hair to the ground. Some of you know the song that I'm thinking about. But he was probably a Nazarite because he was told from birth that he wasn't to drink wine or beer or strong drink, which was part of a Nazarite vow. So here was this guy with long, long hair, dressed in a garment of camel hair, um, with a leather belt around his waist, and eating locusts and honey. This was a pivotal, a pivotal time in history that John appears on the scene of human history. This was the beginning of the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. What may catch your attention uh, as you read through even these verses is John's focus um, was not on himself. And that, I think, becomes even more astounding when when we will look at in a couple moments that there were tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of people coming out to hear John preach. That could have easily gone to his head. That could have easily sidetracked him. That could have easily filled him with pride. It easily could have uh, uh, allowed him to think that he really was the center of the universe. But again and again and again in the text, you see that John's passion was to magnify Jesus. John's passion was to elevate Jesus. John's passion was to turn the hearts of people away from, uh, uh, in repentance to Jesus, to look upon Jesus. It was an all-consuming passion for this man. He wasn't concerned with himself. He wasn't concerned how he was perceived with others. He wasn't concerned about what he said as long as it directed and pointed people to Jesus. Before he was born, an angel came to his father, Zechariah, with considerable news. Zechariah had been praying for his wife for a long, long time. His wife had been unable to have a child. She was barren. And likely, she was past childbearing years. But John continued to pray for his wife. And all of a sudden, as he's in the service of the uh, temple, in the temple, the angel of the Lord appears to him and tells him about the birth of a son. It must have just blown Zechariah away. Like, have you ever been praying for something and you you don't really think that it's going to be answered, but you pray anyhow because you think you're supposed to pray for it, and then all of a sudden, boom, it's answered, and whoa, thank you, God. Well, more than that, but I think Zechariah was maybe caught up in that kind of a situation. And the angel says, you're going to have a son, and he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink. He will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. That in itself is an incredible statement. That tells me that God can be at work in your child before they're born. That God is able to to turn the heart of a child even in the womb. And I don't want to make too much of that, but there's all this kind of stuff that if you play certain music and, and as you, I, I know my wife prayed for our children in the womb. Uh, and there's this fascinating declaration here that even in the womb, John was filled with the Holy Spirit. 
And then it goes on and says, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He will be, go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people of God prepared. John, in his gospel, says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness to that light. Again, John's passion was not to draw attention to himself, but to draw attention to the Lord's Savior, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, to bear witness of the light who came into the world. And we all are familiar with that statement of John. He must increase and I must decrease. John's whole passion in light was to make the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. And as Christ was magnified for him to slip more and more and more into the background. It's all about Jesus. It's all about the coming Messiah. And John's whole focus in life was to point people to Jesus. I wonder if you were to sit down with John and have coffee with John and say, John, what drives you? What motivates you? All the stuff that you do, of all the places, what drives you? And he say, it's my passion for Jesus Christ. It's my passion to prepare people's hearts to receive Jesus Christ. His was a work of preparation. And I think we can all be engaged in that kind of thing. It doesn't mean that we don't work. It doesn't mean that we, we don't uh, study it. It doesn't mean that, that we, we, we don't take care of what we have. It doesn't mean that we don't pursue gifts that, that we have. But in the forefront of our minds is all the time is, how do I give glory to God in this? Because there's a scripture that says, um, whatever you do, whether you eat or drink, do all to the glory of God. And so in your work, you can point people to Christ. At the dinner table, you can point people to Christ. As you're going to college, you can point people to Christ. You can have a passion that says, how can I make Christ known? How can I give Christ the credit for everything that takes place in my life? John's mission was then to preach a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. His was a work of preparation. His was a message of people to get your heart right. Turn away from your sins. Repent of your sins. Get ready for this coming king. Baptism was something that was new, at least how John practiced it. It was, in fact, some say novel there's little evidence that anything like what John was doing had been done before or was doing, being done in a co contemporary perspective. But this baptism that John was performing or that he was applying to people as they confessed their sins and as he baptized them was an external way of demonstrating their act of repentance from their sins. And so their baptism was an outward expression an outward indication of an inward attitude that had taken place in their heart, an attitude of repentance. 
Notice his audience. It says, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized. This was a massive movement. God was doing something in the hearts of people that, that the, the, the word of John's ministry was just spreading like wildfire. And people were feeling compelled to go out and hear John preach. And after they heard John preach, to be baptized. There was this, this magnetic draw, so to speak, that was taking place in the ministry of John. And I might as well get myself in trouble in the second service as he did in the first service. I was thinking of an example of this. And the only thing that I could think of in our modern day that gives me some sort of sense of an unexplainable draw is Taylor Swift. But, but what's going on in our world is, is amazing. That, that, that the lineups, the money that people will pay, the, the holidays that they will book, the flights that they will take, this, this draw to come to a stadium with 100,000 people sometimes that are drawn to Taylor Swift. I was going to say it doesn't make sense that I... I don't want to get in trouble. <laughs> but there's something going on. And in a much bigger way, and in a much more critical way, there was something that was going on in the hearts and lives of people in that area that was drawing them to John. Some say that there were over 300,000 people in the course of John's ministry that would have been drawn to John. I can't imagine him uh, throughout the day as, as crowds would come and there'd be wave after wave and he would preach to them and he would proclaim to them the, the, the need to repent of their sins and then to be baptized as a way of showing that that repentance uh, was something that they had partaken in. And wave after wave after wave, day after day after day of people being drawn to God. This is nothing short of a miraculous work of God touching the hearts and lives of people and showing them that they had a need. And it tells us what he was dressed like. He wore a garment made of uh, woven camel hair. His diet was locust and honey. Why are we made known about what John wore and what he ate? One of the reasons is that this would have been a clear mark to the people of God that there was a prophet. I don't know if I had mentioned, but God hadn't spoke through a prophet for over 400 years. It's like God had gone silent. When the book of Malachi ends, we are, it, it is 400 years later that God finally speaks to another man his word. And this would have just stirred the hearts of people. They would have, they would have said, there's a prophet? God has spoken again? And so this garb that he was wearing was, the, was the, what prophets wore. Um, not all of them, but many of them. And in Zechariah, he notes that no one will pretend to be a prophet by wearing a prophet's clothes. And so by dressing in a garment of camel hair and having the belt around him, he was identified as a prophet of God. And so people were flocking out there in part because they hadn't heard a word of God for over 400 years and now God was apparently speaking through this man, John. 
The second thing that is critical about this is that the garments that John was wearing identified him with Elijah. And in the book of 2 Kings, chapter 1, verse 8, uh, they, the king says, well, who did you talk to? And he says, well, he wore a garment of hair and a leather belt around his waist. And the response was, that's Elijah the Tishbite. And why is that important? Well, John was one who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Here was a, a, a man with the same kind of ministry as Elijah. Elijah was calling the people of Israel back to repentance. The, the people had gone after idols Headlong, they had embraced idolatry. They had rejected God and they were worshiping the Baals and they were worshiping the Astra. And, and Elijah's ministry was one of calling them back to a relationship with God through repentance. And so here we have the connection with not only a prophet who spoke the word of God, but of a prophet who came in the spirit and the power of Elijah. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. For all the prophets of the law until John prophesied, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. So it was important to mention what John was wearing because it identified him as a man who spoke the word of God and it identified him as Elijah with the power and the spirit of his ministry. Finally, not only was something revealed that was hidden, not only was something big happening in the wilderness, but someone significant had entered human history. And that's what John's message was. He, he, his message was a message telling the world that God had entered human history. It's a staggering announcement that John was making. That in the person of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had entered into time and space. He says of the person of Christ, in verse 7 there, he says, And he preached, saying, After me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. John understood who this was. Maybe not fully, but certainly understood. In the Gospel of John, we get a bit of a conversation recorded from John the Baptist. It says, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him. And as he saw Jesus coming toward him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. John understood that, that Jesus was more than a man. He makes a statement here about the eternal nature of Jesus. He says, he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. John bore witness, said, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, 
He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. That was John's conclusion. He came to realize that, in fact, Jesus was God incarnate. And he, he gets a, as he realizes that, then he makes this statement that the strap of his sandals, I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. We don't wear sandals. Well, at least not in the wintertime. And we don't walk on dusty roads um, normally. But that was common in those days, and it still is common in the Middle East. And your feet would get sweaty, and they would get stinky, and they would get dirty. One of the lowest tasks that any servant could be told to do was to untie the sandals of his master. This was such a, a low ask that Hebrew slaves would never be asked, and if they were asked, they could refuse to undo their master's sandals. And what John is saying is that Jesus is so great. Jesus is so mighty. Jesus is so far above him that he's not even worthy to do the most menial task in, servant, in service to this king. It's an incredible recognition that John had come to a realization of who Jesus was. And this is the intent of Mark's gospel, is to bring you and I to the place where we, too, realize who Jesus actually is. As I've been thinking about this, I, I have been just pondering in my head what for years we have seemingly done. We have extracted Jesus from Christ and the Son of God. And so we've almost entirely humanized him. We've buddyized him. We've trivialized him. And we look at Jesus, and, and it's like looking at any other human being. Maybe one who's a little bit better. Maybe one who's a, a little bit more moral, moral, but human nonetheless. And we lose sight of the fact that Jesus is God incarnate. That Jesus is the Messiah. And if we were to grasp that, it would, it would alter the way that we walked with him and the way that we talked with him and the way that we perceived him and the way that we responded to him. And John understood the gap between himself and who Jesus was. And he says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. The second thing John notes is something about the work of Christ. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I've thought about this text for years, and um, I'm maybe a little bit closer to making sense of it, but the best way that I can make sense of it is by going to the book of Acts, um, in Acts chapter 19. Because there's an incident that occurred in the city of Ephesus, Ephesus some 25 to 30 years after John the Baptist was baptizing. And Luke there describes how Paul came into the city of Ephesus. And the very first thing that Luke says there is that he found some disciples. 
And at first glance, we, we might say, oh, disciples. They must be disciples of Christ. But all of a sudden, you get a sense from reading this text that maybe it's not what we think. And clearly, something happened in Paul's head as he was having a conversation with these 12 men. And he began to realize that they probably weren't even Christians. That they might have known the language. They might have sort of uh, identified with a, a group of people in Ephesus who had come to know Christ. But Paul quickly sensed that something wasn't right about these 12 men. Michael Green writes, clearly these disciples were in no sense Christians. That's a pretty strong statement from this commentator. Another says about them that they were almost Christians. And so we wonder ourselves, well, what did Paul see? What was it about their behavior? What is it about their language? What is it about their way of thinking that all of a sudden he stopped and he says, okay, we've got to back this up and we've got to talk about Jesus. And so he asks two questions of these individuals. Because he wants them to examine the basis of their faith. And by the way, that's not a bad thing, is it? The book of Corinthians, Paul writes this, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you do that from time to time? Do you, because part of the Christian life is at some point you profess faith in Jesus Christ. Um, but it's a long journey. It's an ongoing walk. And as the parable of the seed and the sowers would remind us that sometimes that profession is not a complete profession. And so Paul says, examine yourselves. From time to time, sit down and examine yourself to see whether you are in the faith. Don't be scared by that. Don't be worried about that, but think that through. And in light of that, then do you know the marks of faith? To examine yourself, what would you look for in your life to say, yes, I'm in the faith. Yes, there has been a transformation that has taken place in my heart. One of the places that you could go for some guidance would be the book of 1 John. Short little book, five verses. But John says this about why he wrote the book. He says, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. How do you know that you have eternal life? What are the marks that you would look for as you examine yourself? Let me just pull out three that John mentions. The first one is obedience. We know that we have come to know him, writes John, if we keep his commands. If you don't give a rip about God's commands, if, if they're easy come, easy go, if, if something better comes along, if there's the own will of your heart that says, no, I'd rather do this. Um, yeah, I know what Jesus says, but I, I'm okay to just ignore that. Um, I know what the word of God says, but you know, it's not really a high priority in my life, but yeah, I'm a Christian. John would say, examine yourself. Because one of the ways that you know, one of the ways that you have assurance of saving faith is if you keep his commandments. A second one, John would say, 
is this. He says, let us love one another. For love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God. John is pretty specifically talking about your love for brothers and sisters in Christ. So if you're part of a local church like ours, and you look at a lot of people around you and say, I just can't stand that person. You laugh. People say that to themselves. We, we, we have this disdain. We have this unwillingness to forgive. We have hurtful language. We avoid. John would describe it this way. He says, if you talk to a brother or sister in Christ and they say, I have a need, and you have the means to meet that need, but instead of meeting that need, you say, oh, go and be warm. Have a great day. John would say, what's the evidence of the love of God in your heart? And so the love of God towards brothers and sisters is a mark that we are in the faith. A third one would be what you believe, what you hold true. And we've been talking about this one last week when we talked about uh, Jesus. Who is Jesus Christ, the Son of God? Well, John would say everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. So as you examine yourself, what have you concluded about Jesus? You think he's just a great man that lived, you know, uh, kind of in line with Mother Teresa and, you know, a, a few people that really stand out as good people who did a great work in our world? Or have you concluded, rightly, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? Those are just three marks. Somebody came up to me um, after the service and said, another mark is prayer. That's That's true. A mark of, of being born again is prayer. Just as, as, as a mark of life in a baby when they're born is breathing, I think one of the first things that, that we are able to do, even though we don't do it well when we are born again, is we want to talk to our Father. Uh, but there could be other ones, but those are just two or three. But Paul recognized that these 12 men that he was talking to were not yet Christians. And so he asked them first, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? That's a really important question. Boy, time's going. Did you believe the Holy Spirit when you believed? The assumption is that when a person puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in them. And this amazing work of new birth takes place in a people's life. John, uh, Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus and he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So Paul would look at these people and he would say, have you received the Spirit? And their answer was no. Haven't received the Spirit. Don't even know who the Spirit is. In Romans, Paul says this, for the mind is set on the flesh, or the mind set on the flesh is hostile to God for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ doesn't belong to him. That's so important. Anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. So again, Paul asked these men this simple question. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said, no, we haven't even heard of the Spirit. They had maybe knowledge of the Spirit in the Old Testament, but somehow what had happened at Pentecost had escaped their notice. Nobody had told them about it. Nobody had told them about the fact that Jesus, uh, who had lived this life, had been killed or murdered. Um, he had been placed in a grave. On the third day, God raised him from the grave. Then he ascended into heaven. And when he got to heaven, what did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit. And they weren't aware of that. Paul's second question then to them, well, then in what were you baptized? If you weren't baptized in the Spirit, what were you baptized in? And they said, well, in John's baptism. And the response is, well, John's baptism, it was a baptism of preparation. It wasn't a baptism unto salvation. It was a baptism that turned your attention, your thoughts, your thinking towards Christ. John said, you need to focus on Jesus, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. You need to look to Jesus, who is the sin bearer. Sins are taken away through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And when we put our trust in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, this amazing thing happens. He baptizes us with the Spirit. The Spirit comes to dwell inside of us. The Spirit takes our dead bodies and gives them life. Our spirit makes us new creations in Christ Jesus. We are born again. We now have spiritual life. It is absolutely critical to salvation that the Spirit of God dwell in us. And that's why John said, this one is mightier. This one is more powerful. Because in Jesus, there is this total internal transformation that takes place because of who he is and what he has done for us. And he turned to them and he said, John's baptism of repentance, he says, he pointed them to Jesus. Tell the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is Jesus. And they had missed that. John said, don't look at me, look to Jesus. And these 12 guys had missed that. And then it's as though the penny dropped when Paul explained that to him. It says, Then the men believed on Jesus Christ, and they became born again. They were baptized in the Spirit of God. That's what it says in verse 5 of chapter 19. And on hearing this, on hearing the good news, on hearing what Christ could do for them, on realizing that Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, they moved their eyes from John onto Jesus. And they were baptized in the Spirit. And they became 
now, believers of Jesus Christ. Do you know that someone significant has entered into human history? Do you know that? Have you come to understand that when Jesus entered into time and space, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world was revealed to us and that all who would put their faith in Jesus Christ and realize they can't save themselves, but that this one can because he has paid the penalty for our sins and because he is God, that when you put your faith and trust in him, you are baptized in the spirit and made new. It's an incredible, incredible experience. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you looked to Jesus, Christ, the Son of God, trusted him for the forgiveness of your sins and been made new? I urge you, if you haven't, to do that today. Father in heaven, I thank you that for so many things. I thank you for your word, which has told us what you're going to do and why you're going to do it and the difference that that makes in our lives. I thank you that you have been revealing and unfolding a plan of redemption for thousands of years. And that that plan of redemption in many ways culminated in the coming of Jesus Christ. I thank you for a man like John who obeyed you and prepared the way, proclaimed the path, encouraged hearts to get ready to meet this king. And that John, in the midst of all his fame and all his acclaim, didn't get caught up in that, but kept saying, no, look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. I pray this morning, Father, that every one of us here would consider and ask ourselves, have we looked to Jesus? Have we trusted in Jesus? Have we believed in Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and been filled with the Holy Spirit and made new? Work in us, I pray in Christ's name. Amen.